Hello, and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often, movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 5, Episode 2, and today we are going to be talking about It, Chapter 1, from 2017, based on the Stephen King novel. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by co-founding member of the original Losers Club, Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matthew. (laughs) How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. How about you? Good. I uh, I gave you a little bit for our first episode of this season, and then I was like, uh-oh, I might be priced into doing it for each episode this season. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So, it's locked yeah. in. It's locked in. So we'll we'll have to see see how it goes. You know, that's okay. That's okay. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, things are going well. It's a, I have a, a lot more time available for watching movies and recording podcasts now. So that is very good. Yeah, and we, on my end of things, well, I can timestamp time stamp this for everyone or everyone who cares to look it up. We are recording this on the eve where it's very likely that your Seattle Mariners are going to end the longest active playoff drought in north american sports their magic number is one so all it takes is an orioles loss or a mariners victory and i have just i've been like buzzing for the last 24 hours i kind of can't think of anything else so we should be done recording by the time the mariners game starts but the orioles game is going right now so if if i seem distracted it's because i'm you know just sort of bouncing off the walls over here that's all right it's a very yeah. exciting time. So. It, it is. And by the time this airs, people will know how far the Mariners have gone in the playoffs. But, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. This isn't my sports podcast. Uh, let's talk about this movie. What's your... I know you hadn't seen it before. I'm pretty sure you hadn't read the book either. So what sort of expectations did you have coming in? How much did you know? This one's really tricky because, so like you said, I didn't watch the movie. I didn't read the book. I didn't see the original movie, the one with, uh, what's his name? Um, Tim Curry. Tim Curry, yeah. So I didn't see that one. But also this is a story that kind of permeates a lot of culture, especially with uh, teenagers. So as someone who works with teenagers and teaches them. Like, knowing about the film It and, like, the idea of scary clowns and all of that stuff is something that's really, like, just very pervasive. And so, along with the same things, I remember reading The Dark Tower and watching The Dark Tower and seeing the reference to Pennywise in that one. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, I had read an article that was, like, an explainer for people that didn't know who Pennywise was. And it was like a paragraph. Oh, yeah, it was like a paragraph of like who Pennywise was. So I knew that I knew a little bit of like what the the character was, but not any of the story. I don't know if that makes sense. So yeah. um, I wasn't the the very brief, very vague details of what the monster is is something that I that I kind of knew. And then I've heard the phrase, we all float down here. I've heard that a bajillion times and seen 
gifts of the you know getting into the sewer thing a hundred million times i don't know so those kinds of things i was very familiar with but those are from usually the gifts that i see are from the older film and not from the newer one so it's not like i was recognizing the images to that extent so it's it's weird i i really did not know like any of the story though uh so awesome so that was kind of fun but just some details i had picked up yeah, it is a little, it does seem like certainly the clown, Pennywise, and the image of the red balloon, which they yes. used for a lot of the marketing for this movie, like it's on the poster and you see sort of that gif around. And I kind of remember, I don't know if this is an implanted memory, but I kind of remember there just being a lot of like those little red balloon emojis on Twitter leading so up too, to the release yeah. of this movie i think it's, i and, saw a lot of those too yeah so yes there, there's definitely some imagery that's pervasive but yeah i'm i'm excited to get in to the story with you in the back half and sort of see how how it hit you and how how you sort of tracked it all because it is i guess i'll talk about my personal history with this the i mean this is one of a few books, probably a handful of books that changed my life. I read it for the first time when I was, I guess it was in 1999, it would have been. I was in seventh grade. And the way our school was structured there, you, I don't don't know if this is how it is there, but you move from elementary school to junior high between sixth and seventh grade. Is that Mm. how yours is structured? It is not. Uh, usually mm. here, it's between fifth and sixth grade. So um, close, but not quite the same. So, and when, like, one of my memories is we went to, like, we were getting the tour of the library on the first day, and we got a, uh, wait, what did I just say? Did I, what did I say we got a tour of? <laughs> <laughs> the library. Okay, cool. I meant to say we got a tour of everything on our first day. And I remember in during our tour of the library, the librarian, who is someone I actually would end up being pretty close with at school, he, like I would end up being his TA and sort of ended up working there my eighth grade year, the, mm-hmm. so the following year. And I remember him saying, like, there are no rules in the library. Everything in here has been deemed appropriate for kids but you know probably don't check out like a Stephen King book without getting your parents permission (laughs) and I had no idea who Stephen King was I didn't know and I was like oh that sounds interesting I want to know what that is and so I went home and said (laughs) asked my parents like do you care if I read Stephen King and my parents were like no and this was the first one that I got and it created a love affair with him and his stories and his characters that has persisted to this day. But this book in particular, and we'll get into sort of the themes of the book and the themes of this story, but the the way the book is structured is also this like sprawling epic. The book is famously over a thousand pages, so... Uh, I think it's, it depends on the printing, but it's either like right under 1100 or a little over 1100. And I just didn't really know that 
books could tell stories like this. It's a story that takes place in multiple times and is jumping back and forth. And the way it does character development was just so unique and the character relationships were so deep to me. So I, yes, I I remember reading it. I remember talking to Evan about it and how, how much I loved the story and it was, but it wasn't really anything I was able to share with anyone else. As far as I know, I don't think I really have any other friends or close friends who have read the book. And so I reread it in college and found the book held up. And then when they were, it held up for me anyway. There, as we'll talk about, there are definitely things in this book that don't hold up. I don't want to say you can just read it with a modern sensibility and be totally fine. But then when the movie was coming out in 2017, I was just like, so hyped for this movie. I was so like in the same way that I think we both were for Lord of the Rings in a way where it was like a story that was so deeply personal to us that was hopefully going to be finally brought to a wider audience and both it and the lord of the rings books while they are very different they are also not for your casual reader they're books that provide like a high barrier to entry to get through and so i was so excited for to have people be able to experience this story and so yeah i saw it opening probably opening day the certainly opening weekend i saw it with some people from work and it was one of those movies that like i was just on such a high walking walking home and i was so excited throughout the day like i bought the audiobook just so that i could listen to it while i was working because i was so excited <laughs> and that's great yeah, there's there's obviously like a huge amount of nostalgia wrapped up in this story for me. So that's one of the reasons like I was so excited to a revisit it, rewatch it. I hadn't rewatched it since I saw it in theaters, but then also get to talk through it with you and maybe share some of my enthusiasm, but also see how it hits you as someone who is not familiar with it and for not sure. familiar with the original story. And I remember all of this when it was coming out, and I remember you, like, talking about it. So yeah. uh, that's my other connection to this book is just, like, vicarious excitement. I was very excited for you to see it, even though, like, I didn't know the story. And so it's one that I've always been like, I should probably watch this at some point just because I know that you love it so much. But it's not something that's in like my wheelhouse at all. Like it's not the kind of thing mm-hmm. I would ever choose to watch on my own. And so I've been very hesitant about going and watching it. So I was very excited to watch it for the podcast because it's a really good opportunity and I knew that I would be able to watch it and be able to discuss it in a way that I would enjoy a lot regardless of how much I might or might not enjoy the movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. And I do one thing that I think is like very nice about how I experienced this is this is especially this first part this first chapter is a coming of age story and so I kind of read it at the perfect time at Mm -hmm. age 11 and I know that you watched this with your teenager so we'll talk about that experience in the back half but when don't let me forget that when we talk about 
advice for first time viewers is I want to make sure that we get if you have any advice for people navigating watching this with their teenagers or preteens, like how to navigate that. So let's yeah, not I wrote it down. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that I don't know that we really need to justify it any further. I sort of just preached for a long time about this movie. For sure. But yeah. the the only other thing that I will say is that we had lined this up to watch before and then it got taken off of HBO. I think that's what it was and so yes. we ended up replacing it with The Shining. When we first originally conceived of the idea of the show, this was on our short list of things like to to eventually cover at some point. It's it's like been locked in that we would eventually do this basically for forever. Yeah. And hopefully I don't we haven't released the first well, we haven't released the bonus episode yet or the first episode of this season, but I'm hoping we'll be able to time this out so that it sort of lines up with Halloween. That'd be great. If not, yes. it'll be be shortly after. So let's talk a little bit about 2017. This is our second movie from 2017. The other one came out, I think, what, like two or three months before this? And it's a very different movie, very different watching experience. Uh, That one was was The the Big Sick. Yeah, The Big Sick. The Big Sick. Yeah, The Big Sick. Yes, very different kind of movie. But, you know, and this one came out a couple of months afterwards and, you know... There was a lot that happened in between those two months as well. Yeah, so there's a few things that we discussed because they were important for the big sick. So we won't talk about them in depth here, but I did want to mention the Muslim ban here just because it was a major event of that year. And I think one of the things that Stephen King does really well and one of the things that certainly felt very present is the he writes about the horrors of both supernatural things but also just your everyday basic humans and this book and this story sort of runs the gamut you have racists you have misogynists you have homophobes which doesn't show up in the first part but does show up in the second part and is pretty present in the book and so all of that swirling, all of that racial animus that was really just felt out of control in the country was something that was on my mind when I went into the movie theater to see this movie. So I didn't want to not mention it, even though we already covered it in in quite a bit of detail for, for the big sec. Right, yeah. Well, one thing that I can mention that was right before the film came out that actually ties in with that was that on September Mm -hmm. 5th, the Trump administration decided to unilaterally cancel um, DACA or the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals or the DREAM Act. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I remember that because I was out like going to protests around that time period. So I probably would have been like, on the streets on the night of the of when this film came out doing some protests and things like that regarding DACA protests to reinstate DACA and to you know treat people more fairly that have come into the United States so that was definitely on my mind a lot at the time period and would have even prevented me from maybe going some to see some movies that I would have wanted to see 
I think you were. I think I remember getting out of the movie and walking to the subway and messaging you to make sure that you were okay at the protest. That that checks out. I can't. I tried to kind of go back and look to see like in in my timeline of social media stuff, but I couldn't. I couldn't get it all figured out. So, but yeah. around that's that's was a lot of stuff going on in my life. So it would have been things of that nature. Yeah, one of the things as I was sort of scrolling through the events that happened in 2017, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, but like in retrospect, sort of that whole period, that whole four years kind of just feels like a fever dream. But 2017, looking at those events, I was shocked at how many things felt like they were... Well, I don't even want to say they felt like they were a big deal at the time because I think they were a big deal, but they felt like they were going to be monumental things that we remembered for the rest of our lives. And then those sorts of things just happened like, yeah, Yeah. every day during the Trump presidency. And so I, I guess I should say, if it isn't obvious, like Donald Trump won the election in 2016 and then he was sworn in on January 20th of 2017 and that like that cloud lives all over this this entire year. So I pulled some of the big events that fall into that category for me from like the events that when I saw them break on Twitter, when I got the New York Times alert, like I immediately sent them to you. I immediately sent them to Evan. I immediately sent them to Garrett, who was our uh, guest on the podcast on the podcast for the Lighthouse, and just felt like huge events. So the first one was on April fifth. Steve Bannon was removed from the Security Council, and Steve. I Bannon remember the, that right before I, my birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And on May 9th, uh, Comey was fired. <laughs> yep. In one of the moments there was like, oh, it kind of feels like it's all coming down. And then July 26th, Paul Manafort's home was raided by the FBI. On yep. August, on, and then the last one I had pulled was on August 18th. Steve Bannon was fired from the White House. He was removed from Donald Trump's chief of staff. And yeah, so those were the things I pulled. And the other thing that I also pulled because uh, I guess it seemed emblematic of impending doom was the Super Bowl for that year. (laughs) I'm sure if we have any (laughs) listeners in Atlanta, you have not forgotten this. If we have any listeners in the Boston area and the New England area you certainly haven't forgotten this but the Falcons were up 28 to 3 against the New England Patriots and then or we should mention if you're anyone that's ever rooted against the Patriots you probably also um, vividly remember this so that's probably most of everyone yeah so and they proceeded to blow that lead it was an epic collapse it was a confluence of events that really particularly among people on the left, created a huge narrative in distrusting statistical models and distrusting yeah, that's um, 
yeah, I guess just distrusting statistical models in a way that I found very concerning and showed a lack of understanding for how statistics worked. Yeah. And yeah, so that <laughs> was rough. Uh, though it, it felt like it was a scary year. And it definitely did. <laughs> the one silver lining in that, I don't know how well you remember this, but we uh, ended up betting on that Super Bowl. And you we, and I did. Yeah, we did. And we went to donate to charity. And so I ended up having to take the Patriots in that uh, in that bet. And so when it was 28-3, I'm like, well, congratulations. Uh, the Falcons are going to win this one. And then they proceeded to come back and win. So uh, I ended up winning that. And uh, we ended up donating, I can't remember, like $100 to the, um, the IRC. Um, so... <laughs> um, yeah. How, how did that bet come about? Do you remember? I can't remember. I don't know. It was because uh, um, I don't I don't bet very often, but we decided to do it for charity just to just for fun. But I, I remember that and I remember watching the game because of it. So I watched that entire game and I wanted the, the Patriots to lose because I didn't like the Patriots. But I was like, well, if they win, I guess like, you know, I win the bet. Um, and so it was a very weird experience to be watching them catch up like, oh, I'm, I might win this now. And then pulling it out and not wanting them to win and still pulling it out and, you know, winning the bet. Oh, that is, I mean, I do have a faint memory of this, but yeah, it, like I love betting. I, I think it's tons of fun. I think it's yeah. especially for like low stakes that aren't going to change anything but yeah as you said you don't bet so this yeah. definitely sounds like something i would have done but i have no memory of how it came to pass i remember it because i don't do it very often you don't remember it because yeah. you do it all the time so it was also a particularly traumatizing super bowl like we yeah. had a patriots fan in our apartment but also then managed to get into a political argument and oh, he no. ended up like storming out of the apartment oof yeah, and that's rough. yeah, it was not a great scenario. So you're probably thinking about that a little bit more. So yes, that that was at the the forefront of my mind uh, for during sure. on for that sure. evening. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about from 2017? Yeah, I mean, we always talk about these terrible things that happen, but um, on August 12th, there was the Charlottesville Unite the Right march with, you know, um, yeah. all the Nazis with the tiki torches that were marching and all those things uh, in which Heather Heyer was killed when she was run over by a car. The reason why I wanted to talk about this one is I feel like this film, a lot of what it's about is about people not noticing the danger that is under right underneath of their feet that is coming up and not paying attention to it while people are sounding the alarm and then just not doing anything about it uh which is basically what was happening all through all through that year and charlottesville was like a big moment in that of people just not paying attention to the danger that was that was appearing yeah and i think the remind me how many Stephen King books have you read? I've read I don't know, maybe two. Maybe two, yeah. Yeah. So I I should have counted before we recorded. I've read upwards of thirty. Yeah. And I think one of the things about Charlottesville is that feels like an event, and I remember thinking this at the time, like it feels like an event that would have been written by Stephen King he like he really is able to write about 
the righteous fury that particularly racists, but also homophobes or misogynists are able to tap into and how absolutely terrifying it is that they will do, they'll get wrapped up in this mob mentality stoked on by their racial animus or whatever deep-seated anger they have that will fully convince them that the things that they're doing are not only necessary, but are just and right. And like having watched several uh, Stephen King films, this is something that I've seen quite show up as a theme several times in those. So that Mm -hmm. checks out. The clown in this movie is horrifying. The, you know, the, the monster does horrifying things, but it's almost like it creates this dichotomy where the human stuff is just as scary, if not scarier. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like Uh, most, you know, good horror films, the humans are the real monster. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a definitely saw that theme throughout this book. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about else about 2017, or should we talk a little bit about our, our personnel and stats here? Yeah, let's look at the personnel and stats. I, I pulled the... <laughs> so we hadn't pulled the budget in the box office before. Like, we pulled it right before we recording. We the line, yeah. Yeah. And I had forgotten. This film was made for $40 million, which is yep. <laughs> not a lot of money. That is a pretty low budget. It also checks out because all of the main characters are kids. And they get paid a lot less money. So yeah. your your cast budget is significantly lower. Um, but regardless, $40 million to make this movie. And then it made $701 million. That is a huge box office smash. It is just an incredible amount to pull in for that kind of budget. And, you know, that year was so many, like, big box office films. So many that made so much money and this is one that really stood out even at the time yeah i think we talked about this in our deadpool episode because deadpool became the highest grossing r-rated movie when it was released or the second highest i think it was the highest yes the and highest, i think it became the third highest after it was released i think it's now sitting at the at the fifth highest Let's see. I pulled it here. Yeah. So the so Joker Joker which came out after this is number 1 and then Deadpool 2 which came out after this is number 2 and then you have Deadpool at number 3, the first Deadpool the one we covered and then The Matrix Reloaded and then It. So yeah, at the time this came out it would have been Deadpool, Matrix Reloaded and then and then this movie and then It. Yeah, and then also you had the movie Logan come out in the same year. So Yeah, uh, it was a good a, year for rated yeah. R movies. But yeah, the huge, huge amount. I was teaching at the time period, and I a lot of my students went to go see this one because they were very excited, including mm-hmm. several of my students were reading the novel at the time period when it was coming up. So, so they got oh, the cool. novel and read it. So 
that is, I had a lot of experience with the novel that year because whenever I have kids reading books, I like to go over and just be like, hey, tell me about that book you're reading and, you know, pick it up and like, you know, flip through it and all stuff like that to encourage my kids to read. And that, that book, it is a hefty one to pick up and thumb through. Uh, it is, it, it is quite large. I remember like, I remember seeing the book and how thick it was. This is a vivid memory in my, in my brain. Oh yeah. It's a, a, a doorstop for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a big one. So yeah, this, this movie was very popular, uh, made a lot of money. The reviews were pretty solid for it as well. This is, this was a, a really well loved movie when it came out. Yeah, the, so this is produced by New Line Cinema, and it is their seventh highest grossing movie. Do you want to take a guess at what the six movies are above this movie? Uh, I would guess they are three Lord of the Rings movies and three Hobbit movies. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> oh, I'm so smart. Look at that. <laughs> Yeah, I was floored. I didn't realize the Hobbit movies had done that well. I had, or I guess I had forgotten. Well, you know, when uh, when you have a huge amount of people going to see them in IMAX, that, that helps out the budget a little bit. Yeah, it definitely does. So let's talk a little bit about the people I wanted to talk about. I did want to briefly mention the director here, and Andy Muschietti, Muschietti. And I only wanted, there's not a ton to say about him because this is only his second feature film. So he's really not a very experienced director, or at least not for, not for feature films. So he had done Mama in 2013, which I had not seen. I'm guessing you also had not seen. I have not seen it, but I am familiar with it. And I know that that got the attention of Guillermo del Toro. Um, mm. and especially for being a Spanish language film, uh, Andy Muschietti is from Argentina. And yes. so just the, 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 it's that connection was really strong, strong. And Guillermo del Toro is the kind of guy that does a lot of work to lift up filmmakers from Latin America. So, um, I think that's kind of what happened here is he kind of put his hand on the scale a little bit to make sure that Andy Muschietti could have could get a leg up in the industry. Yeah, and I I think very cool. The rest of his filmography, it's just this movie, and then he has It Chapter 2 in 2019, and then I guess, unfortunately, has the upcoming Flash movie, but that, you know, I mean, that's just been... Everything I've heard about that movie is that the movie is really, really well done with incredible performances and directing, but it unfortunately stars Ezra Miller, who they have been involved in a lot of terrible, terrible things, so a lot of very bad press going around, around about this movie, but I don't think the director should be held responsible for that. Um, so oh, no, I didn't... Know, yeah, I didn't mean to imply that. It's just... yeah disappointing disappointing Unlucky for, for him career, yeah I'd imagine. i don't yes. know it's, yeah. it's a yeah that's rough i don't know <laughs> and at least as far as i know there wasn't really i don't believe there was really any like we didn't really know the extent of ezra miller's issues when the flash went into pre-production i think there have maybe been like rumblings for a while but the 
most of the stuff has really come out that they had done since the movie was in post-production, I think, or maybe... Some of the more egregious things have happened yeah. uh, during post production, which I don't know. I I would I do not Assaults envy and whatnot. Yeah. Yes, I don't envy anyone else involved with the film, like the co stars or the. It's this is the kind of thing that when you're involved in this kind of such a big project that involves the work of so many different people, your actions have huge ramifications for all of them. So it's a it's a real shame that that that's that that's affecting so many people in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And then I wanted to talk about Stephen King. This is a writer who has made a big influence in my life. And I think Stephen King is a really interesting writer. I think he's a really, and a really interesting artist. I think he's someone who is, loves books. He loves writing. He loves storytelling. He loves stories of all kinds, not just horror, although horror is obviously where he made his where he made his mark and where all of his most famous books are, all of his most famous properties. He's also someone who has been staunchly liberal and staunchly, uh, I would say, staunchly on the right side of the vast majority of social issues. I wouldn't like, but he's. Uh, all that being said, he's also a white guy who grew up in America, and so I wouldn't say he's always, if you go back and read his books, I wouldn't say that he's always, uh, not everything would be seen through the best lens if you read it from a 2020-2022 philosophy or a 2022 point of view, but I think if you go back and read them, it provides a really unique insight to the time period. I shouldn't say unique, but I just think it's a very good insight to the time period and how well-meaning white guys were trying to deal with what they saw were social inequities. And I don't think any of that is above being criticized. And I think they're really good conversations to have and yeah so i think that makes his body of work interesting i also think just as a writer and a storyteller he has a unique combination of talents where he is a very popular writer a very mass market writer and i think a lot of times with writers who get popular, there's sort of a stigma attached to them that they aren't very good wordsmiths, that they aren't very good writers. And I don't think that's the case for Stephen King. I I guess I'd be curious your take on it. I know you've only read a couple of his books, Matt. Yeah, but uh, I have a good idea of his standing within the literary community because I teach one of his stories. Um, Mm. Which one do you teach? uh, It's called The Dune. And it's not as well known of his works, but it's a short story. It works really well for like the the age group that I end up teaching, and it's a nice mm-hmm. length that you can teach within within one class period. So that's that's the main reason why it's one that we use. But yeah, he has a really good standing within the academic community. He's uh, generally uh, a lot of people that are literary people think that he's one of the. 
one of the best literary authors of the like since 1950 more or less and that he's particularly good at capturing the voice of middle america so um yeah you know people that are like middle class lower middle class and capturing that voice in ways that are realistic and i don't mean voice just in like the kinds of things that they care about but i mean voice literally in like dialect and the way that they speak and things like that uh is one of the things that he's particularly well known for is writing a way that is understandable and accessible and also reflective of middle class america yeah i i i think that makes sense certainly one of the reasons that his it, a, a lot of his stories have been turned into movies and a lot of them or filmed in some way and a lot of them are less successful on film than they are in book in book form and written form and i think a lot of that is like his inner character journeys his inner character descriptions are particularly good and they're things that are very difficult to get across in film and so if, if you haven't read a Stephen King book I do recommend you check one out I think the one that I generally recommend to people if they haven't read Stephen King is 112263 which is not a particularly scary book at all and also deals with as you said it has sort of those like Americana themes it's about a guy who finds a portal back to I guess it's like five years before November 22nd 1963 and the decides to go on a quest to try and stop the assassination of JFK and I think it's a fascinating story I think it's extremely well written it's relatively modern so you're not it's within the last decade yeah came out within the last decade so Anyway, yes, that that's the one I would recommend if you're looking to go check his stuff out. I would also say Stephen King has this, I don't know if you have this when you read books, Matt, but when I read one that is like particularly well fleshed out, I find that it sort of like takes over how I think and how I look at the world. There's like a sort of cadence to the world that that book lives in. For and sure. I find yes. myself thinking in the with particular phrases from the book or in the tone of the narrator and Stephen King has one of the highest hit rates of that for me like I can remember over like at least a dozen of his books my reading experience of those books because I remember it like influ influencing how I viewed the world at the time for sure yeah it's a he has a a strong ability to kind of flesh out a world and like the world building. And a, a, a big part of this is that he uses a lot of similar kind of settings and makes a lot of connections between the settings and the worlds that he writes. So he just has done a lot of work world building the kinds of things that he's the stories that he's telling. So he has a lot to lean on. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And then I know I've talked a lot about Stephen King, but I did want to place sort of where this is in his oeuvre. Stephen King is one of the most prolific authors of modern literature. The amount of books he has written and certainly the amount of words and pages he has written is pretty astounding. So this, it originally came out in 1986 and it was his 
14th published novel as Stephen King. He had also done five published novels under his pseudonym, Richard Bachman, who I don't think had yet been outed as Stephen King, or maybe it happened like right before this. And then he also had three short story collections. And so his first book was Carrie, came out in 1974, and was sort of a smash hit overnight. So that's just an astounding amount of writing to do in in 12 years. It's a lot, yeah. The the big hitters from there, I would say Carrie obviously was huge. Salem's Lot was big. That was his second book. The Shining was his third book, which Stream It Crossover, we already talked about that one. And then The Stand was his fifth book or I guess fourth published as as Stephen King. And from there, it was just off to the races. Like each of those books was kind of a mega hit. I think The Shining maybe was the least well-received. I should have looked it up, but... Yeah, he's he's got a lot of success in so many, uh, so many bestsellers over the years. Um, incredible work rate for him too. Like that's, a, that's so many books uh, to write. It's- it's wild, yeah. And do you know the most important thing about Stephen King, though? What's that? It's his dog. He's got a corgi. Oh, he's got a corgi. I knew that, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, he's got a really cute corgi. I just had to remember, but yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll find a tweet where he posted a picture of uh, Molly, the thing of evil. Molly, the thing of which... evil, that's right, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I follow Stephen King on Twitter. He's a good follow. I don't know. He's 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 an older white guy, um, and so you know he says things sometimes. I'm like, okay, Stephen, but generally he's like a good, well-meaning, nice enough guy, and he does tweet about his dog quite often, and that's very sweet and wonderful. And I don't know. He's he's generally. I've followed a bunch of authors and then had to unfollow them because I hated them. And I have followed Stephen King for a while, and he has not made me hate him enough to to unfollow him. So that's that's a pretty high achievement, a pretty high bar to clear, in my opinion. Yeah, he he has not completely avoided putting his foot in his mouth. That is for sure. But he is also extremely outspoken against fascism and Republicans. I mean, maybe that's one and the same at this point. You know, one of the things I admire about him as well is that he's very willing to learn. So when he does put his foot in his mouth, a lot of times he'll, you know, listen and uh, try to change his behavior. That And that's that's a good thing. I would agree with that. And there's a particular point where that's happened in this book. So well, yeah. we can talk about it in the, in the back half of awesome. the show. Yeah, very good. Who did you want to talk about? Yeah, so the the main person that I wanted to talk about was the cinematographer uh, Chung Chung Hoon. Um, mm-hmm. The cinematography on this film was really good and really interesting. I've and so I wanted to go and look up the cinematographer and see some of the work that they had done. And he's got a lot of work with a director named uh, Park Chun Wook. So and is involved with 
just a lot of Korean cinema and those kinds of things. But one of the... He has a few that really stand out. film called, by Edgar Wright uh, called Last Night in Soho, which is one that I has been on my list to watch. Oh, um, yeah, on mine too. He also did Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, which is kind of a cult classic that a lot of people uh, really love. He did a he did the film Uncharted, which I watched recently. And he also did the television so, show Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he shot that oh. entire that entire show. So surprisingly I've seen a lot uh, a bit of his work with those things. Uh, and then he's doing an upcoming Wonka movie, the Willy Wonka thing. He has very wide range, but he's done a lot of like um, science fiction and horror films. Uh, and that's a that's a lot of kind of his previous work before doing it was a lot of uh, work on horror films. And he has a really interesting style to the way that he shoots the films, particularly with lighting, which I thought was one of the major themes of this film. And so when we get into the scenes, that's when I, I had a bunch of things that I wanted to talk about that he was doing in the cinematography. But I wanted to mention who it was and a little bit of his background so that when we talk about those scenes, everybody can remember who it was and kind of the things that he's done. Did you mention that he had done Old Boy? I did not mention that he did Old Boy, but yeah, he did Old Boy as well. Yeah, uh, which I have not seen, but I know know the legend of Old Boy, which uh, <laughs> I, I've heard it talked about a lot. Yeah, it's a really just an astounding uh, amount of very good work, and I think that part of what makes this film so successful is that Annie Musietti could get such a well-regarded and such like a a talented and thoughtful cinematographer uh, to help put together the film and one of the things that's interesting about Chung Chung Hoon in particular is that he has a perspective on cinematography that is very story and character based and you know, a lot of cinematographers have that kind of style, but he's very focused on understanding the characters and understanding their motivations and also talking in particular with actors and seeing their perspective and what they're bringing to the characters as he is figuring out how to light and shoot a scene and what kind of angles to use. And so he's very good at working with actors in order to bring that character to life in ways that are unique to that character. Yeah, and they... One of the things that they worked on really hard for this movie that I enjoyed paying attention to on rewatch was the what was Andy, yeah, Andy Muschietti. The that was really important to him for this movie was how expressive everyone's eyes were, mm-hmm. and the there are so many shots in this movie where I was like, how did they? get the lighting to make everything pop in exactly that way and it doesn't i guess it could be touched up with vfx but i'm guessing not based on the based on the budget and it doesn't really look like it it really just looks like astounding lighting and camera placement (laughs) yeah so a lot of it is in camera but some of it is also color correction so that's Mm. not that's not the same thing as uh, vfx because color correction is something that everybody does on every single movie it's like part of of the yeah yeah, it's part of what you're doing which is that you get the pictures and then you're going to you know decide how much of each color is going to 
have more emphasis and things like that. So, so finding the style for this film and the way to bring out the colors was uh, something really important. And they used a lot of really interesting techniques in order to kind of divide the, the world up into two different kind of categories. And so between the way that they use the lighting with a lot of like hard lighting from behind and then a lot of fill lighting in front, they were able to get these kind of this light that was able to get that reflection off of the eyes and then use the color cor correction to really bring them out and make them pop uh, a bit more in uh, oh, so with, cool with the setting because of the way they use the colors and the lighting with the rest it kind of softens up the rest of the picture so the rest of the image doesn't pop out quite as much because it's a softer image with with more diffuse light than what's coming onto the eyes if that makes sense yeah it does yeah it's very cool that's all and I've got to say about him. But the next person, um, yeah. the the guy behind the mask is Bill Skarsgård, um, mm -hmm. playing the part of Pennywise, the you know the uh, um, the title character of the film, I guess you could say. And it? yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh sorry. Oh no, <laughs> I was just saying yeah. it. It yeah. yes, he plays it. We've had, uh, for the listeners, we have had many, many puns on the word it continuously as we've been discussing this film. But, uh, oh, it's been our own, our own Abbott and Costello's for skit sure, in Discord. For sure. So, Bill Skarsgård is a really interesting actor. He's the son of Stellan Skarsgård, uh, which people might know from the, from the MCU films. He plays, oh, what's the name of the scientist guy in the Thor movies? From the um, Thor movies. Yeah. Yeah, what is his name? <laughs> Scientist guy from the Thor movies he plays. And he is also currently playing one of the main characters in the in the Cassian Andor series. But additionally, he just has a long... Eric Selvig. Yes, Eric Selvig. He has a really long cinematography history, Stellan Skarsgård. And also, the Skarsgårds are a bit of a an acting dynasty. He, Stellan Skarsgård has a lot of kids. I can't remember how much it was when I looked, but it's a lot. Like, it's seven or eight or something in that range. Um, and three of them have happened to follow him into acting. Uh, I'm sorry, four of them have happened to follow him into acting. So there is Bill, Alex, Gustav, and Walter that are all actors. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I've seen a lot of the Scars Guards lately because I've been watching I've been watching the Andor series. And I also re recently watched The Northman. Uh, which stars Alex Skarsgård as the as the title character in that one, uh, and then this one, it. So I've seen a lot of their family uh, in different things. He was in Atomic Blonde. He was came to kind of prominence in Allegiant, which is part of the Divergent film series. He was in Deadpool Two. He's the guy that like vomits like acid on everybody. He was in the Eternals. Oh, yeah. So he plays Crow in the Eternals, the the Deviant. And he's also going to be in John Wick 4 and an upcoming television series for HBO called Welcome to Derry. <gasps> oh, I didn't even know that. I know. I was excited to, to, oh, wow. to tell you that part. So, yeah, there is a oh, prequel is a prequel of the It films, the ones that, the one that we're talking about that, that Bill Skarsgård is heavily involved with playing, the, playing It again for that role. Yeah, well, and I just saw him in Barbarian, which is in theaters now, which I don't know. Have you seen the trailer to this movie? No, I have not. It is a great trailer, and you know, like, I am typically anti-trailer. They did a really good job for this one. Like, you can feel comfortable watching this trailer knowing it's not going to give away the movie. But the premise is basically 
this woman or the opening scene is this woman shows up to an Airbnb and the Airbnb was double booked. There's already a guy staying in. Oh no, that's a nightmare in the Airbnb. <laughs> and that sounds like an absolute nightmare for me. Like that's, uh, that's scarier than this one. Um, and guess who is the uh, the guy who's already there? It's Bill Skarsgård. It's Bill Skarsgård. Yeah, of course it of is. Of course it is. And it is like it's definitely a meta thing where like you are supposed to know that the that he played Pennywise and it because oh, um, there it's a lot of like is he good is he bad is he good is he bad like which or is it just like it's scary to show up to an Airbnb and have there be someone else there like is that just yeah and scary. have it be a white guy it's yeah also very, very cool Bill Skarsgård is a very like weird actor <laughs> like his performances mm-hmm. are so strange and he's very physical I don't know that that's why like, even seeing him, he has a very unique and kind of strange look. And he does these really weird faces that show up on film and all these kinds of things. Like, for one thing, this was in the behind-the-scenes material. They were trying to get this shot with Pennywise. And they were like, what we want to do is we want to have Pennywise looking but kind of get distracted and have one of the eyes kind of do go off by itself a little bit. So they're like, we're going to do that in post and put it in VFX. And he's like, no, no, I can just do that. And so he could just do that with his eyes. So when Pennywise's eyes do that, that's that's him. That's all in camera. He's just making his eye go off in a different direction all by itself. And I think a lot he he does a, a lot of like body movement in this movie and I think a yes. lot of it is real. Not all of it, some of it's impossible, but Yeah. Yeah, it it's a really strong performance. Uh, an incredible I, amount of it. Well, on on top of it is that he he did most of the stunts for this because they had uh, a stunt performer, but they, Bill was just like, he, yeah, I'll do it. (laughs) I'll do it because I'm in the costume and the movements have to be in a certain way. And putting the stunt Mm -hmm. performer through the like six hours of makeup is just like too much. And they're not going to be able to replicate the movement exactly. So unless it's really dangerous, like it, the vast majority of stunts he did on his own, because, you know, just to, to make it look right. So a lot of what is being performed on the on the screen and a lot of those weird movements, it is in the behind-the-scenes material, it is surprising how much he does. That's, it is, like, you'd be shocked by how much of that was not special effects or anything. It's just him performing it. Very cool. Should we move on to advice for any first-time viewers? Advice for first-time viewers. So general advice, I think, uh, probably good first, um, which is this is a scary movie. Like, prepare for, for a... Uh, I don't know. I didn't particularly find it that scary myself, but I think it would scare most people. There's a lot of, like, jump scares. There's a lot of very creepy scenes, all of those kinds of things. So just be, uh, just be prepared for that. There's a lot of body horror in the film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people's bodies doing really strange things. And that's... I don't know. That's rough. Uh, there's a lot of violence against children that's kind of like the idea of the story so if that's something that's going to be really difficult for you the uh, i don't know maybe not maybe not the best film and then there's also so uh, there's a lot of references to rape and to child sexual assault in particular so that might be something that uh, just a trigger warning for that yeah i would say so definitely you can sort of modulate 
how scary this movie is going to be, I think, based on how immersive you make your experience, especially if you're watching it at home. I found it to be really, really quite scary in theaters. And then I sort of switched to watching it in full black halfway through my viewing experience. So if you're and then was able to sort of recreate that immersive theater experience. And so if that's something you want, like the full black is definitely going to get you what you want for this movie but if you're worried about the scares like I think you can watch it in a little less immersive environment with some lights on or or what have you and probably be closer to okay I mean you're gonna know your limits better than I do for sure you'll also get an idea pretty quick the the scares don't wait so you'll get an idea pretty early on in the film if you're going to be able to handle it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can you can nope out quick. Yeah, for sure. As far as like watching it with with kids or with teenagers, so I had it on. Addison did not want to watch it and like covered her eyes and her ears whenever she ran pa- past the the TV because it Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, she didn't want to. Uh, our policy is generally if the kids want to watch something, then they can. You know, they just will watch it together and then discuss it and uh, break it down. And so they set really good limits. Because we do that, they set really good limits for themselves. So if Addison didn't want to watch it, like, that's that's probably, you know, that's probably an age that's it's just not appropriate for. For Ethan, it didn't even scare him. So he was fine. Mm-hmm. Like, he was just like, you know, I don't know. He's, he's pretty... He's pretty chill as that goes. He was really interested in the story, but it's not the scary parts that I found particularly interesting to watch with Ethan. It's the stuff that deals with the sexual assault, the stuff that deals with um, the coming of age, and just like all of those kinds of things I found really interesting and worth talking about. Yeah. Generally, I think that it's great to be able to watch these things with your kids and be able to use them as conversation starters and be able to to be able to figure out how they feel about it and use that as a jumping off point to talk about sensitive and important topics. So that's what we've done with it. I think it was a really good experience. But you have to be prepared to talk about those kinds of experiences in a sensitive way with kids that is going to be understanding and empathetic while also being mature, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 it definitely does. I think, like, obviously, if your kids are not asking or don't want to watch this movie, like, don't make them watch it, you know? Don't do it just Mm -hmm. because you want to have that experience with them. But if they are asking for it, like, this movie is going to give you a lot of stuff to talk about with them. Yeah. And I guess be prepared also that it does include a lot of kids saying fuck, like, that that is going to happen. Yeah, if you're going to have a problem movie. with the fuck word, it's used quite often in the, yeah. in this film, which, you know, whatever. I, it doesn't bother me, but it does get used yeah. quite often. I, I mean, I don't... Whatever. Yeah, I don't have to give my... my well, I probably will on the back half of the show. For sure. So the, I, I did remember the other thing that I wanted to say back at the front, back when we were talking about 2017, that felt particularly important about this movie at the time is like the there's very strong anti-bullying and what it means to be bullied 
and how you sort of deal with bullying and band together against bullies mm. in this movie. Yes, that's true. And of course, like Donald Trump was like bully in chief. I think that was something that we all, particularly if you, if you were anti-Donald Trump, talked about him. It's like we just like elected the biggest bully ever. And so it felt so, it felt like something that was extremely real to see that sort of behavior deconstructed well deconstructed is the wrong word but put up on screen and then sort of uh tackled head on for sure yeah i agree with that okay should we take a break for sure let's do it okay welcome back we are gonna spoil this movie and i guess i might spoil a little bit of the book i will try not to spoil the second movie i'll try not to spoil chapter two but i will talk a little bit about the reception of chapter two because it does affect how i view this movie now for sure sounds good i know basically nothing about chapter two oh no way i mean i know based okay just based on uh what i saw of the first film I know that chapter two is them coming back as adults, I think. Okay, yeah. But otherwise, I right. don't know anything this, this about movie, it. Yeah, yeah, and it's like 27 years later. Um, and so, cool. Like, that's all I know. Yeah. Mm. Okay, well, I'll, yeah, I'll give some rundown and especially how it differs from the book. But let's start with how you how you found this movie and how Ethan found it, too. Ethan really liked it a lot. Ethan has been really on kind of a horror kick lately, so he's really enjoying these kind of things. And so I have to watch them with him, and it scares me, and it's, you know, difficult for me to watch. <laughs> but I keep doing them so that then I can, like, you know, talk about all the stuff that's in it. And so mm-hmm. uh, we've watched actually a bunch of them this year this might be like the eighth horror film that we've watched together this oh year. wow so it's been You're a building up an immunity um, i guess so yeah i mean i said this one didn't scare me very much so you know maybe maybe it's working like i said i didn't find it particularly scary but that wasn't a problem for me as watching it i enjoyed it more because i didn't find it very scary i don't know if that makes sense um, yeah, it but, does. Yeah, so because I think it's the kind of film that would scare a lot of other people, but I don't find this particular brand of horror to be all that scary. As far as how I enjoyed the film, you know, it's a it's not the kind of film that I would actively seek out and watch. And so, you know, it didn't blow me away that I watched it and I was like, oh, you know, this one uh, is now one of my favorite films and, I, and I've been missing out this whole time. But it also is a really good movie, so I enjoyed watching it a lot. Intellectually, like, there's a lot of stuff that I thought was really interesting, a lot of interesting choices. I thought it was, I enjoyed the whole kids on bikes aspect of it. I enjoyed kind of the mystery of the way things were going. There are some of the things that were a little bit problematic about the film that kind of pulled me out, and it... I don't think you could make the film differently without them because they seem like things that are just 
embedded into the book, but they did pull me out of the story a little bit as I was watching and limited my enjoyment. So overall, I enjoyed watching the movie. I enjoyed the movie. I'm glad that I watched it. I probably would not go back and watch it a second time. I do want to watch the second one, though, so I can find out what happens. So that's where I ended up with the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. I'm interested to get into some of the stuff that you bumped on. Some of it I'm sure I have too. Some of it I think they probably improved a little bit from the book. That doesn't surprise and then some, me, yeah. And then some of it they did uh, make a little, like the book handles it better and or it's going to get fixed a little bit in part two once you get to see a little bit more what happens so yeah uh yes obviously it's like uh a complicated story so i i can actually touch on the the two the two main things that i bumped on first sure yeah it's one of these things that i think they're particularly delicate topics to talk about and uh stephen king is like you know there there are things that uh, are blind spots for stephen king historically so one of them was in the the depiction of so there's only one girl in this entire group and it's beverly um and i loved her marsh yes beverly marsh and i loved her she was really really good but because there's such a limit of the of the female perspective you don't she kind of carries the entire weight of that on the film and then the way that the other female characters in the story are presented are I did not love and there's the way that it deals like I thought that they meaning like Eddie's mom like Eddie's mom and, and uh, yeah. yeah and some some of the other characters I think there's like a librarian and things like that um, sure and then yeah. I think that the way that they handled the the child sexual assault that that happens to Beverly probably they handled it in the best way they could considering uh, I assume that's in in the source material and they probably handled it as good as they could but i i think that it would i think that it could have used a little bit of a more delicate hand uh in the way that that was told so those things i kind of bumped on i think that if someone were writing the story now they would probably i think if stephen king were writing the story now he would probably do it quite differently including probably including more than just one uh girl in the entire group if that makes sense yeah i think so i think it's there there definitely was like a blind spot for how like a boys loser club was sort of formed and how i think it kind of is true to how it happened in the 80s or i guess in the 50s which is how it is in the book where like uh boys formed a boys club and then like you'd get your one outcast girl but the, like that came from antiquated societal things that if you want to tell a modern story just like yeah as you said it puts way too much weight on beverly yeah so not not that she did a bad job at all um and her character was fabulous it's just a lot on her shoulders by herself and there's no character or performer that can carry that weight it it's of you know the expectations of an entire gender it's not possible yeah, the, it, in this situation, it's actually a case where the movie kind of navigates that relationship a lot better than the book does. Yeah, that's what I um, assumed. 
that that was just kind of the vibe that I was getting. Um, and so I, I hate to call it like a, I bumped on it, but it, it's not really a criticism of the film. If that makes sense. Yeah. The, no, it is the, do you know how the book ends? Um, no. Have I you don't. seen, have you read it? It's probably one of the most controversial scenes in any Stephen King book. Um, the it's the same part that happens at the end of part one but to defeat the clown to defeat pennywise the first time the seven of them basically all have lose their virginity together Oof. and yeah yeah, so and i like i i get what he was doing there but i don't think i would have liked that (laughs) if uh oh and and you wouldn't and it's my memory of how it's written again i haven't read it since college is not that it's written in a gross way but just like the inherent act of how it all happens is obviously extremely gross and he's talked about it since then that like what he was going for was this like uh it's a the first this the kids section is a coming of age story and a loss of innocence and there was in his mind, there was no cleaner metaphor for loss of innocence than losing your virginity. Like I said, I get where he, where he was going with that, and that's exactly what I was assuming that he was thinking. Yeah, yeah. and he's said, like, yeah, if I, I wish I hadn't written that scene that way, and if I had to write it now, I wouldn't have written it that way. And so that's why the love triangle between Bill and Ben and Beverly, (laughs) all three B names, just feels a little weird and doesn't ultimately feel all that satisfying. And so it's a little a little strange when they kiss at the end and then she leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway. So that makes sense. Uh, and like I said, it, it was something that I bumped on, but I assumed that it was handled uh, in a way that I would like more than in the book, and uh, that checks out. So the sexual assault, particularly with her dad. Uh, yeah, I I had forgotten. I was even surprised this time that the movie went as far as it goes. The book goes even further. Yeah. But and it is like. The, the stuff that the movie implies uh, the book is a lot more explicit about mm-hmm. that he wants to sort of like check that she's still pure, check that she's still a virgin. Yeah. And it is, again, it's one of those situations where he is, Stephen King is outlining the horror of being a little girl trapped at home where the one person who's supposed to protect you does not protect you. And there are unspeakable horrors happening to kids outside and there are unspeakable horrors happening inside. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's necessarily a problem that that's in the, in the book. I, th- I think that, that it's an important enough story that it's worth telling. It does get told more often than I think people realize sometimes. But the other big thing is that it's the only female pers- yeah. story that's presented in the film. So that's that's a lot of, again, that's a lot of where the problem comes, is that, like, you, there's only one girl. So, yeah. yeah. 
so then the other thing I bumped on is shouldn't be surprising and is similar. Um, and it's the character chosen Jacobs uh, is the one black character in the film. And again, once it's basically the same concept is there's one character that the entire perspective is put onto. I do. Uh, I did like the way that the group kind of brought him into the group. And, but I think that the, the story doesn't very delicately deal with the particular ways that he is going to that he faces a different kind of discrimination and danger than necessarily uh, all the other people that are in the book or in the film and it does try to make that point in the story but it doesn't get quite enough weight especially because he's uh, very much one of the more minor characters and gets very little screen time compared to the rest of the group and he's the only black character in the group so those are basically the two things that i bumped on in the story yeah so i said that there was stuff that the book handled better and stuff that the book handled worse and this in my opinion is one of the places where the book helps out a lot yeah because the i'm pretty sure there's just scenes that they shot for Mike Hanlon, for Mike Hanlon's character, that did not make it into the movie. Because based on what I was reading, I believe this was Stephen King's attempt to sort of write, sort of fix what he had messed up in The Shining Uh with the magical Negro trope. Because in the book, Mike Hanlon... um, so th- there's two aspects that that happens a lot better in the book. One is he sort of serves as the narrator, even though Bill Denbro. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. Bill Denbro is like obviously has the strongest protagonist function. He's the one who's gonna grow up to be a writer, and so he's like sort of the Stephen King stand-in, as happens in a lot of his books. Um, he's the one who has. The major love interest with Beverly. He's the one who everything is sort of kicked off of because Georgie dies. But uh, Mike Hanlon is the one who. This is all stuff that happens at the very beginning of the second movie. But what makes the 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 first movie and the second movie happen simultaneously in the book? Yeah. So you see them as adults and you see them as kids. And Mike Hanlon is the one who stays behind. And then when everything starts happening, he's the one who has to call everyone and say, you have to come back. That that makes sense. And so you get this narration and you get sort of like the importance of his role and how like integral he is to everything happening he's sort of like the most important one the glue who holds it all together and um he's the historian so so that's one aspect that's handled better and then the other one is they allude to it very briefly in the movie in one of the scenes we're going to talk about they mention the black spot Uh and this is Mike Hanlon backstory that I'm guessing just got cut, but his parents were killed there and it was, they were killed there 
because of like a Ku Klux Klan rally. And so it goes into, yeah. That's the kind of thing that uh, I could tell that they were hinting in those directions, but they didn't, they didn't explain some of those things um, in the film. So uh, that makes sense. And uh, it's also, I'm not surprised that that was handled better in the book because there were, it's a very long book. Um, So there's, so uh, it would have been easier to do that. The other thing that I think probably hampered them a little bit is the time shift. I don't know that the, the way the time shift was put into the book or put into the film uh, because the book happens in the 50s and then the 80s, right? And then this one happens in the 80s Correct, and then yeah. in the, the 2010s. And so it yeah. feels like it kind of missed the mark a l- little bit in the time jump and the way that they were trying to interpret and bring forward that story of the racism and it's the way that it's affecting Chosen Jacobs. And then because yeah. of that, they don't spend enough time with it, so it just didn't doesn't get very much treatment. And it's just left in the background and... So, I don't know. It's uh, Those are the two major things that I bumped on. But I still was able to enjoy the film quite a bit besides those things. Yeah. I guess I can talk about how I experienced this. I um, So this movie, I guess I can't remember. I think it's either, I think it's my 31st highest rate, rated movie on Flickchart. Maybe it's 21st. So it's a movie that like, and I'll, all of that is based on just like my experience watching it for the first time in theaters, loving it so much. I haven't revisited it since then. I haven't revisited it since I saw the second one. And so I think it's probably is going to drop in my ratings a little bit. So much of it really hinged on the promise of like I get to bring so much to this movie because I know what all of these kids turn into. Mm-hmm. And I get like, I have that promise of what happens. And I haven't rewatched the second one, so I don't fully remember, but I don't remember. My memory is that it's just not quite as fully realized as the first one. It doesn't have a lot of the charm that this one does. So my experience watching it this time, it's going to move down a little bit, but all of the stuff that I love, like those shots of the kids riding on bikes, the like one of the things, and you and I have talked about this a lot. I sort of got into it a little bit with Beverly and her dad, like the amount of control parents and bad parents have over their kids is just like staggering and it feels completely unfair and it's something that I get really emotional about and a lot of these kids not all of them I think um Bill Denbro's home life doesn't seem overtly abusive you sort of see like his dad is definitely curt with him at one point but also one of his sons just died so it's sort of to be expected um but what Eddie has to deal with and certainly what Beverly has to deal with it's just like horrific and I find that sort of stuff extremely moving and extremely I think it's easy not to think about the shit that kids have to go through when you don't have to see it and I know that's something like you know pretty intimately because you're a teacher so you get to work with kids and you don't see them at home but you see them away from home yeah well, that that's also the theme of the story is that yeah. uh, these kids are going through a lot and the adults 
don't notice, they don't pay enough attention to them as human beings and their internal lives to see the danger that is happening to them, the danger that they are going through. Um, and that's for me why this movie wasn't particularly scary because I just was viewing it the entire time, the monster, as being a you know, uh, anthropomorphic personification of all the danger that kids go through. So, so for me, this wasn't like, like, this isn't new. And like, I see a lot of kids that go through those kinds of things. So I don't know. I don't know. It's, I, so that didn't scare me. I'm, uh, that's what I, that's what I deal with on a constant basis. So seeing the personification, uh, I, I actually really liked the monster as far as that goes because of the way it could personify each of those things and make it kind of a physical thing that they could that they could interact with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's go on to the scenes, though. Yeah, let's let's talk about some some scenes. We I've got a got a lot of stuff that I can cool, that cool, I cool. can talk about here. The um, so the first scene that we want to talk about, sort of in <laughs> typical me fashion, is I want to talk about this opening scene, and I guess I do want to ask you: Did you were you familiar with this sort of like prologue, this vignette that opens the movie? I didn't know um, mm-hmm. that that's what was going to be happening, but I figured out real quick that that's what was happening. Um, so this was a story, this story of like Billy or Bill building the boat for George before I even knew who Stephen King was before I even knew what it was. This is a story that I remember like kids told around the campfire, like at Boy Scout camp. So I was pretty surprised when I picked the book up to find this story, like opening the book that I had heard before. It just felt like something that had indelibly always existed, even though in retrospect, it probably is just like someone had read the book, thought it was a cool story. And so they started telling it at Boy Scout camp, which is kind of a funny realization. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's really fascinating and it's, you know, terrifying. This was the, the one part of the film that did get me a little bit, uh, it was a little bit scary to me. This opening sequence, yeah, the opening sequence, but not because of like the interactions between between uh, Georgie, Georgie, and and Pennywise. That's that's not what mm-hmm. I think. That's what gets a lot of people is that Pennywise is very creepy. Yeah. But just the idea of kid like losing your kid as they go off on their own and not knowing where they are and not that's the thing that scared me. I mean, that's sort of the thing with the the Kids on Bikes movie, right? Yes. Is that comes so specifically from a time before cell phones and a time where kids were afforded a lot more mm-hmm. freedom than they generally are now. Yeah. Like, you know, every now and then Ethan has to walk home from school and let himself in the house just because uh, I have my Dungeons and Dragons club. And, like, mm-hmm. my heart every time when he's walking, he texts me, he's walking home, texts me when he gets home. And I am scared the entire time because, like, anything could happen and you can't supervise it and there's uh, they have to take care of themselves. It's it's a scary thing. So that's, that's the one thing, that's the one part of the film that actually kind of scared me. Yeah. So I guess I'll run down what happens in this scene quickly. So we we do see 
Georgie and Bill, and Bill is working on something, but we don't really know what it is. And he sends Georgie off to get some wax. And Georgie doesn't really want to go. We're going to learn that it's because the basement of the house is a little scary. And we get the first plant for the rest of the movie. Bill says, you want it to float, don't you? Which, of course, uh, (laughs) there's going to be this whole idea of things floating, which will culminate in the climax of the movie when we see all the bodies of the dead kids floating around. And then... So Georgie goes down to the basement. We get sort of this typical horror movie fake out where everything's very scary down there. And he gets the wax, comes back up. Bill finishes the boat for him. And then he's going to go out into this record storm, this unbelievable storm, and sail the boat that his brother made him down, down the torrential, the water that's rushing down. Sort of like in uh, Parasite. You get a nice little Parasite crossover. That's true. And then while he's doing this, the boat's going to end up going down the drain. And there he will encounter Pennywise. And Pennywise is going to sort of coax him down there. And when he reaches down into the gutter, Pennywise rears up, bites his arm off. And then that's the essentially the cold open for the movie. Yeah. And so there's... It's rough, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for Georgie. It's rough. There's a lot of things I really, really like about this sequence. It does one of my favorite things, which I think I've mentioned on the podcast before. It opens with this solo piano that's happening over the credits as they're going, and you see Bill working on building the boat. And then... It's just solo piano, and then it, when Georgie and or yeah, when Georgie ends up going down the stairs, it sort of pulls out and reveals that that piano is diegetic. It's not yeah. underscoring from the movie. Yeah, that stuck out to me as well. And it also stuck out to me in particular because right when that was coming down, my phone buzzed because I had on where it will let me know songs that are playing in the general vicinity. And so I was in my phone bus and I was like, Oh, is somebody texting me? Turned it over. And it says, uh, the song name is every 27 years. And I was like, wait, what? Um, and so <laughs> I was like, what's happening every 27 years. That's creepy. And I was like, okay. Spoilers. So, yeah. For the no, movie. So, Unbelievable. So that kind of, uh, had me on edge a little bit just because of the name of the song. And then, I think they do something really cool, and I didn't quite clue into it until my second watch through. But basically, as soon as they reveal that this music is coming from their mom playing the piano, she hits a lower bass note that then gets infused with a little bit more EQ. Maybe there's just a little bit of extra instrumentation there. And all of a sudden, the score of the movie starts to take over. And it's like, it just lets you know that it's happening in the world. And then it just like explodes to say, no, the world is so much bigger than this. Yeah, yeah. It's very good the way that that was done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that was, this is happening all in a major rainstorm yes now correct me if i'm wrong but i I remember there being some water in the basement when he goes down is that accurate or is that later on in the film Uh, that's later on that's when bill is 
sort of like having the nightmare about it or Pennywise right. is creating That's the right. nightmare scenario about um, it. There is so much water in this in this movie. It is mm-hmm. obviously like the major theme that ties in with this idea of floating. And so and it's water that is being used in so many different ways thematically. So with the rain coming down here, water that's going through the gutter, there's a lot of different metaphors that go with this. You know, rain, we usually think of rain coming down from the sky as being rain that's good and, you know, water that's good and clean and fresh. But then as soon as it's getting into the gutter where uh, Georgie is walking through, that's where you it mixes with all the tar and chemicals and things that are there underfoot and washes up and stirs up a lot of things that maybe you don't necessarily always see so there's all this grime that's kind of on the bottom of society that's there constantly but then when the water comes from it washes it out and uh, it kind of bubbles up and it will make people sick all those kinds of things and so that ties in with this whole idea of like the every 27 years it's like the force of nature is coming back down bubbling up from the deep Yeah, yeah yeah so some of those kind of kind of metaphorical things and then i don't know that one stood out to me a little bit no i completely agree with you and i think it's a little more direct like there there's a little more direct viewing of it as well because as you said before one of the things that this movie is talking about is particularly the kids are paying attention to something that is not that the parents are not paying attention yes, to. Yes, exactly. And that there's this whole undercurrent that only the kids know and only the kids can see. And the parents, I think, are sort of like George, like Georgie's boat. They're just sort of like floating along. They're just like not looking under the surface, not seeing what's going on. And we're going to find out at the very beginning of the second movie they all do that as well. When they grow up and they go away, these memories get erased and they sort of just float through their lives and the memories don't come back until they come back to Derry. And so I think I think it is an intentional symbol that this boat and the idea of it floating and the idea of it speeding along and then finally like falling down the gutter and being an unavoidable catastrophe yeah it's it it has to be intentional because there's so many metaphorical uses of water that this all checks out to me this this all makes sense it's always a little weird with stephen king he's such an instinctual writer it's like hard to tell how much of it is intentional and how much of it is just like accidental (laughs) accidental genius accidental his head making connections that then are going to resonate on a larger scale but uh yeah it makes sense so um so georgie goes down into the basement and i think it sets up he has this moment where you see the eye like two little lights yes in the background and he's scared of them but Georgie's resourceful. He's going to turn on his flashlight, see that there's nothing, run over there, get the wax. And I think that sets up the idea of this story where the kids are going to be resourceful. The kids are not going to run from danger. The kids are going to face it head on and that that's eventually going to be what allows them to prevail. I think that's really important that they do in this 
in this opening sequence. Uh, agreed. And it also sets up along, and metaphorically, one of the ways this is represented is the way that this story uses light and this light versus dark theme. I don't know how much that is in the book, and it might be, I assume there's a little bit of it, but in the film, they use, uh, you know, it kind of bugs me a lot of times when people talk about there's a theme of light versus dark in movies, because a lot of times it's not that strong of the theme. It's just you use light and darkness in movies. It's just part of the way things are. You're using the shadows to tell the story. But this one really does clearly use light symbolically with the darkness and the different colors of light that are being used, uh, specifically that, like, the tungsten yellow and orange light that's very closely associated with Pennywise, and then the yellow and white natural light that is very associated with the kids and their group coming together. And so when you see those lights down in the basement, you it's the, it's the yellow or the, the orangish kind of yellow tungsten light that's coming out of the basement and that ties in with 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 the monster. Mm-hmm. But then then he turns on the flashlight and you get this bright white light shining back into the, the into the dark spots that kind of forces it to run back away in the other direction. And this kind of idea that the way that you deal with these problems is not by just like leaving them in the darkness in where you can barely see them and ignore them, but by shining a bright light on them. So it seems to me that they're establishing that footprint metaphorically at the beginning of the film. I think so. And I think one of the things about this story, most of Stephen King's stories that sort of lend themselves to this is he's not someone who really dabbles in moral ambiguity very often. Obviously, you can have lots of great stories that deal with moral ambiguity, some of the greatest stories. But like his are generally going to be pretty stark battles between good and evil. And in this case, Pennywise and all that he represents, both as the monster and then as the various human incarnations that support that evil are they're just evil and the people fighting against it are good yeah that yeah that makes sense just a couple other things that i wanted to comment on that i loved from this opening sequence the when georgie finally gets out there and starts sailing the boat the like if you know what's you know that Georgie's gonna die if you know the story, if you've read the book, but the music does not tell that at all. The music is triumphant and soaring. Like if you just played someone this track, I think they'd be like, Oh yeah, that's like from an epic. That's from you know, the beginning of the journey or the middle of the journey. And so it's this real subversion, I think, of of expectations that then all of a sudden just slams home as soon as Georgie runs into the, what are they called? The partition or the wooden, the construction horse that, that is yes. there that he runs into. Yes. And Ouch. I, I remember watching this in the theater for the first time. And when that music started and it just created this feeling that I knew was going to come crashing down in about five minutes, I was just like, oh, they nailed it. Like, this movie is going to be exactly what I want it to be. That's, yeah, very good. I mean, it it works really well. 
I think a worse horror movie would have played your typical horror stuff there, and the whole thing would have been foreboding. They would have taken, yeah, and built up the foreboding music as you got closer and closer. Uh, yeah, but the way but you don't this... need it with Pennywise. No, no, no. It's a, and the the way that it kind of jumps out at you in that moment, that tension, I think, or that contrast works really well. And then the last thing that I want to comment on in this opening scene, and this is something that runs through the entire movie and through the entire story, is they don't fall into the trope of the brothers fighting. These two brothers really Mm -hmm. love each other. And there is, you get that amazing shot of bill and georgie like looking at the boat together with one of them i think they're uh i think georgie maybe bill is like just over georgie's shoulder and it is like so clear how much they love each other and this is something that persists for all of the losers and that was one of the things that like really affected me as a kid was like how close that friend group was and they loved each other not in spite of their foibles, but they loved them like because of their foibles and they banded together. And it was something that like, I was like, I want my friend group to be like this. Like, I don't need my friend group to be big. I just want it to be people who you're going to trust and know will always have your back. For sure. Yeah. It's uh, that makes sense to me. And as someone with two brothers, you know, I really appreciate appreciate that presenting brothers that really love each other. I really love my brothers. Um, and so, you know, that checks out. So, yeah, yeah, it's good. Sorry. I know I talked a lot about that scene. I no, no really, I really like it. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you want to say before we? No, I think that I think that we on. covered all the things that I want to talk about, actually. So. Cool. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about your scene, the our swimming scene. Yeah. So this is the scene. As I'm looking through my notes, this is where this everything kind of clicked for me, mm-hmm. and, and so uh, I really enjoyed this one a lot. And I think it's a really brilliant scene the way that it's put together. So the lead up to this scene, right before it, is when Beverly cuts her hair. The hair that her dad kept telling her was like, you know, the he kept like fingering her hair, and I don't know, it's yeah. gross. She cuts her yeah. hair off. He's like, why did you do that? It makes you look more like a boy. So that's a clear thematic thing that they're doing. And then we see these this group, the the Losers Club. They're all sitting in their like tidy whities on the edge of this cliff, <laughs> cliff hawking loogie, loogies off the edge. And <laughs> they're wanting to jump in the water, but they're all scared to do it. And then Beverly comes up and then, you know, takes off her dress and goes and jumps in the water. And they're all staring like... I can't believe that she just jumped in and now we're all going to have to do it. And off they go into the water. And then they have, it, there's this great scene of them just like playing in the water. Um, and uh, so what really stood out to me about this scene is the cinematography. Is the way that the... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's shot with this like clear, like uh, very bright natural light with these that's just illuminating everything that's there and just everything is bright and you can see everything they jump into the water though and you have the way that it's shot is the water is kind of dividing the screen up uh not quite in half it's more like a third and then two thirds and so the water every now and then will kind of or the camera will every now and then dip below the water and then kind of come back up almost as if the camera is floating in the water along with these kids 
And so these this idea of like floating in the water, uh, it really started getting me thinking here about this concept and the way that that water is being used as this like dividing line. Everything above the water is this bright, brilliant thing that you can see everything that's going on, but everything below the water is dark and blurry and hard to and hard to pick out and you don't know exactly what's happening. And and they're floating in between the two spaces. And so I got to thinking of floating, the concept of floating as being existing in this liminal space between two places mm-hmm. um and i think one of the major things i think there's some different things that's going for but one of the major things is this idea of adolescence as being floating in the middle between adulthood and childhood and kind of right in the in-between spot and so metaphorically i think a, a big part of it is it's representing that for them of them floating right in the middle of those two things and then they get back up, they, they plays the song Bust a Move, and then they learn a little bit about the history of Derry and all of that stuff. So that's kind of what happens in the scene and some of the things that stood out to me. So I'll pass the time over to you, though, uh, what you thought thought about this stuff. Yeah, I think so I think there's a couple, like, really interesting structural things that happen here. Because this movie, because the book follows such a different structure they sort of had to re they sort of had to change the way everything functioned in this movie and so one of the weird things is it's possible i missed it but i don't think there's an approach to the inmost cave in this movie and it's because of i'm guessing some of it is time but it they just don't get that moment because when it would ordinarily happen beverly gets taken yeah and there just isn't a moment for them to stop and breathe before that happens and so the only time you really get to do that the only time they really get to celebrate being together in the movie is is right at here this yeah, moment at this, at this time and i th- i think it's i think it creates this really weird unease for the movie because you expect to get it again but you're not ever going to get it because I think this scene also Mm. is simultaneously the crossing of the threshold. It's when their group is formed and when they decide that they're going to battle this thing, that they're going to figure out what is going on. And it's when the losers club is formed, right? Right. When they all finally get together, I I guess, except Mike, which is, uh, yeah, part of, part of the, part of that problem we talked about before um so i think that's really interesting in terms of structure but they also do this thing that i really love which is when when beverly runs past them to jump into the water they do it in like this slow motion that where she's running past them and they're sort of watching her and they're seeing a a uh, girl in her underwear for the first time, or at least like not quite lingerie. Yeah, I guess underwear, but not lingerie. And then it undercuts it while she's still in slow motion. You ha- you hear Richie say, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and it is just so so good. That, it's one of the things we didn't talk about it before, but the humor between the kids, I think they really nail in this movie. Yeah, I agree. Particularly for Richie, like I laughed out loud a lot of times in the theater and even on my rewatch here, I laughed aloud again cuz Richie just 
caught me so by surprise. And for me, that's a testament of the direction because the yeah. way that you get a group of, I mean, it's all this movie is all kids. I, that's that, that's possibly the most remarkable thing about this movie and the way that it was put together is there's no besides Bill as it. There's no adults that are like leading the story. It's entirely kids, and they got they got young actors to perform the roles as well, age appropriate. I think probably the actors are a little bit older than the ages they're portraying by like uh, yeah. three or four years, but it's close enough that like they are kids as they're performing it, and you can tell they got a really strong bond. Like they became really really close friends as they were filming this as well that it was a a great experience for the actors to become close together as well as filming it and these kids do a good job i've talked before about how much i dislike seeing the director on child actors where i can see them saying okay now you're gonna do this and you can see them sort of manipulating the camera Mm -hmm. and i only really have that in this movie maybe like 10 percent of the time which is really remarkable yeah uh, one of the I in between watching, in between watching it the first time and watching it now, I saw Goonies for the first time, mm-hmm. and I was not surprised when I was reading that the Goonie, Goonies was a really big inspiration for him for this movie. Yeah. It obviously but is. I th- yeah, yeah, it obviously is. I think like a lot of the Goonies didn't really work for me. I understand why it works for a lot of people. Especially if they watched it as kids. Um, Especially if they watched it as kids. It's not one that really works for me either. But I think this movie fixes a lot of those a lot of the missteps of Goonies and one of the biggest ones is just making the kids so grounded and not cartoon versions of their characters. Yeah. They feel like real kids to me. Yeah, for sure. I I definitely agree with that. So, I also just I uh, I love that they use Bust a Move here. Bust a Move is one of my that's that's a song that I really really love. Uh, I've listened oh, to really? it a lot. Yeah. So, and it's a song that I remember from like when it was out and like listening to and I don't know. I've listened to it many 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 times. Um, and I don't know. <laughs> just that moment worked really well for me as well. Um, and it definitely the weird thing about it though is i wrote down right after this that like oh this is a kids on bikes uh, movie is like i'd finally figured it out by this point but it's a little bit weird because uh, it's set in the 80s but kind of late 80s but it's filmed in you know in now mm-hmm. and the kids on bikes thing like we were just getting to the point at right when that song came out and right where they're at where the kids on bike thing doesn't really work anymore quite as what because people just aren't using bikes quite as much for a lot of different factors that are that are coming into play so it's like right at the tail end where this could actually happen this kind of story so the Mm. yeah i don't don't know so the song kind of takes me out a little bit of like all these all these kids listening to it and in kind of the transition in the way that bikes are used, but I don't know, it still works. Um, it will, while we're talking about the bikes, it will, I, I don't know if you bumped on it, but there are a couple shots that probably struck you as strange where it really spends a lot of time looking at the name of Bill's bike. I didn't pay attention to that, Did no. You, you didn't notice? No. Um, 
Well, that's really good because that means you didn't bump on it, but it's a little bit of an Easter egg there for book readers because his it's it's a huge plot point in the book that his bike is called Hi Ho Silver, and it's a bike that he had been like looking at in the window gotcha. and dreaming about, and like there's the whole story of like him trying to save up his money, and then I think he ends up getting it for Christmas. Yeah. One of those very common nostalgic kid things it that makes sense that makes sense it's it's a little bit weird this is another thing where the time the change of the time moving everything up 30 years kind of detracts from the story just a a smidge because because of just the bikes uh, and the way the bikes are used but it's fine it's uh yeah i don't i don't think they would have done it I th- I'm guessing the reason they did it was because they didn't want to set the adults in the 80s. I'm guessing they just didn't want to deal with that. It, it, it makes sense to me moving it up. It's just that there's some things that just are, are are a little bit weird, and they don't detract from the movie. But when you think about it afterwards, you're like, huh, I don't know that, that the time frame actually works perfectly for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, let me jump in a little bit with all the research I did on kids on bikes movies. Uh, Ooh, yeah, yeah, so I, I yeah, did a lot go. of research on uh, on kids on bikes movies because I was trying to figure out where this sits in like the uh, in the history of kids on bikes movies. Uh, and then I had mes- mentioned to you, and I didn't realize that it was when you said, "Oh, this is like it, it." The book is like one of the originators of the genre, and, and my thought in my head was that can't be possible because it was around before that. But turns out I was wrong. You were right. It is. Is, and Stephen King in particular is one of the kind of people that uh, that creates this genre. Though the big movie that really starts off the the kids on bikes genre is uh, with E.T. In mm-hmm. I don't course. have the the date on it. Is it eighty two or eighty four or something like that? I think it's nineteen eighty two because yeah. I looked it up. Uh, yeah. So nineteen eighty two with E.T. Now the idea of the kids on bikes genre is basically that you have a group of kids that are working kind of as uh, co protagonists to to solve different kinds of problems but they particularly discover something disturbing within a middle-class suburban town in middle America so this is kind of like the idea of the kids on bikes uh, genre and then the bikes themselves are their mode of transportation and their way to maneuver around the space in order to, in order to solve this problem that the adults are not really helping them solve Typically, it's some kind of supernatural or horror film where there is a monster of some kind or an alien or whatever it might be that they discover. And these kids are trying to figure out how to how to solve their problem, mostly without the help of adults. And they come together as a group band together in order to solve a problem that the adults are not really noticing. And so it was published, the book was published very soon after E.T. And then the other book, the other story, Stand By Me, which is also based on a Stephen King story, is one of the other major progenitors of the genre. And so it doesn't really become a genre. I think that one was... 85 yeah it was right before this yeah so it doesn't really become a genre until this and uh, so obviously stephen king is involved in in making this and then others there's et there's bmx bandits and there's over the edge uh over the edge comes before et and has a little bit of the kids on bikes genre but then they transition at one point off of the bikes and use like cars and things like that so it's not it's not 100 percent the same but you can see the origins but then as I was looking back of this idea, if you if you 
change the mode of transportation from bikes into some other mode of transportation that it doesn't necessarily have to be bikes. You see some other major influences, obviously, from things like The Outsiders or To Kill a Mockingbird Mm -hmm. or even um, Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And, you know, if you think of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huck Finn as being kids on bikes but with rafts on the Mississippi River, uh, it really kind of explains the story, uh, especially if they find like these these outlaws that are like you know trying to steal all this stuff that the town doesn't know about, and the kids have to you know solve the problem, all those kinds of things. And then I was the the kids on bike genre is always like really centered in the eighties, and a big part of that is the way that the Americans use bikes kind of has been been through a really weird cycle. You had a big... Nice pun. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a big increase in bike usage after World War II uh, because there was a big mm. promotion of this that, that people should use it to become healthy and all of those kinds of things. So there's a lot of promotion of, of bicycles. But then in the 50s, it dropped off a lot, which is why if you... And it became seen as something for kids in particular. And so that's why for the book, it would work really well to have in the 50s the these kids like really pining over a bicycle and all of those kinds of things as their mode of tra- transportation. You have a little bit of bike usage in between like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But in the 70s, kind of towards the late 70s, you have the rise of BMX or bicycle motocross and bikes that were mm. made for that particular kind of bike riding, especially the 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 way that kids were using bikes in these kind of suburban environments and so you have a huge spike in in bike sales for adolescents throughout the 80s and a huge increase in the amount of people riding bikes and using bikes that then drops off very quickly in the 90s with the with the introduction of video games and uh the internet and all those kinds of things that interrupts that that uh cycle and uh, basically causes a humongous like dramatic drop off the other thing is that you have this change in the way that America was like setting up our cities and moving more towards like uh, more streets and more parking lots that hits kind of a critical mass at the end of the 80s. Mm. So it's like a particular pocket of time where these kids on bike stories really work. And now we have a lot of nostalgic stories from people who grew up during that time period that people are making about that from things like Stranger Things or even this movie It. So I don't know. It's it's really interesting. There's a lot of uh, a lot of history in this genre, and it's kind of its own unique genre. And I don't know how long they're gonna be able to keep making kids on bikes films, and how soon it will like just disconnect with Gen Z and things like that. But uh, for now, I don't know. It works. It's interesting. Yeah, we'll kind of have to see. I mean, Stranger Things obviously has been like a mega hit for Netflix. And I assume there's going to be some sort of knockoffs after it's done that try and tap into that. And we'll just really have to see whether they can be successful, whether there's a space for that. Otherwise, we might just have to wait for the wheel to come back around again. Yeah. Uh, and well, yeah, the wheel to come back around. But I think that what you really are, if I were writing a kids on bikes movie now, what I would really want to look at is the uh, transforming the tr- the transportation system from a bike into 
the internet. So like, right. You could do like VR. Yeah. Or even for me, if you wrote like this kind of story where the horror story and everything that is happening is happening, like on a video game, like Roblox or Fortnite or something like that. And some kind of creature, I, I think I that mean, would work really well. And for this kind of genre and translate it into something new really well. You could kind of make the argument that that's what Ready Player One is. Yeah, but it's not very... Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't cast aspersions on Ready Player One, but I was going to say it's not very good. So <laughs> um, so there you go. I don't know. It, yeah, it's it's got its stuff. It's, it was largely popular. The book that's was true. largely popular. I haven't seen the movie, yeah. so I don't... It's, I haven't either, but I I've, I've read the book, and I don't know. It's a, Anyway, this is not Ready Player One, the, the episode, so <laughs> we, we can... It, it is not. Yeah. That's all I have to say about this scene and all of that stuff, but uh, it was surprisingly a lot. I don't know. Uh, you went on for a while about the first scene. I went on for a while about the second scene, so. Um, the only thing that I did want to say is, like, the the kids on bikes trope or the history of this trope, the, the, the other thing that it has in common is they're almost all coming-of-age stories yes. because it's very important that you're having kids dealing with an otherwise adult problem Mm -hmm. that they solve and then they become adults or they cross over into manhood or womanhood or what have you yes for sure that is a major part of the the story and is very clearly a major part of this story here yeah uh what's our next our next scene is the scene in the bathroom which is this scene is a lot it starts off oh yeah beverly has this like postcard with a poem that she reads to herself that you know is very romantic and she goes into the bathroom is like sitting in there uh and the difference in the quality of the, the light from this scene that was right before it where they're at the at the lake and then they kind of go and they're investigating a little bit and this scene that's happening in her house with the with the bathroom it is much darker there is a lot of hard hard light that's being shown with a lot of contrast between the shadows and then phil that's softening softening up the areas around it but because they're in the bathroom it creates really weird shadows because the objects in bathrooms are just shaped in strange ways mm-hmm. and so they use they use this quality of the light really interestingly and it's got this this tungsten light this uh, kind of orangish yellow light that's being used as well that for me is tied thematically to to pennywise pretty clearly she then hears a voice coming from the sink that says we all float down here which is <laughs> very disturbing and scary um this is one of the things that i was like okay that's ooh, i'm feeling a little twinge of scaredness there i got past it but for a moment i was like ooh, i don't like that then she goes and looks in the sink and she gets this ruler and goes in and like, I don't know, the fear of like reaching down into like a drain is a legit fear that I think a lot of people have, especially like it's (laughs) people that live kind of in suburbs and things like that. She goes down and she pulls out this red bloody hair, uh, mimicking the hair that she had cut off earlier in the story. And it comes out and grabs onto her and, like, pulls her down towards the sink. Uh, and then blood starts spouting out like a fountain and covers yeah. the entire oh room. Yeah. And it is... They had so much blood. It is just... It's a lot of blood. <laughs> it is so much. They went all out on that. And it's just so, like, thick and, like, I don't know. 
it's it's a lot and i felt so bad for the actress that had to just sit there like she is completely covered and drenched in oh, blood she takes it yeah. and it is everywhere every surface <laughs> of the entire room is just coated with all of this thick blood which makes it especially strange when the dad comes in to check on her and he can't see the blood and that's kind of where the scene ends this one was that scene is a lot and there's a lot going on here but you know it was that was one of the ones that that really stuck with me afterwards. I assume that's one of the images that people think a lot uh, think about a lot from this film. Oh yeah, like when I was thinking about rewatching it, I was like, the, it's one of those scenes that I just remember from and watching it in the theater. It was horrifying. Like as she's lowering that tape measure into the sink, and then when the hair reaches out and like wraps around her. It, uh, yeah, it was extremely affecting and I knew it was coming up. So I actually, it was when I switched my, um, I, I switched the apartment to all black right before the oh, scene because I wanted Ugh. to be able to like recreate that experience again. Oh, I, I wanted to make sure I had the the tension of it. Yeah. Whew, that's a lot. But the, the, the thing that I do love about it though is when she goes to get the rest of the losers club and bring them back the it's not even a question bill i think it's bill just says well we can't leave it like this and it's just not a question they are going to help her clean it up because they're like she's their friend and that's what friends do and being able to work together is how they're eventually going to defeat this thing and yeah, I, I I love that. Yeah, and then uh, I can't remember the kid's name. He's played by Finn Wolfhard. Uh, says that it looks like Eddie's mom's vagina uh, in the room. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you know I think it. It's Richie, right? Richie's yeah, the Richie one who makes that. all the quips. Yeah, Richie yeah. says that. So, but I do think that Richie Tojier. What stood out to me about about Beverly's storyline, which you know, there's a lot of interesting things with it. There's this shot earlier with her in the in the like drugstore in the pharmacy where she's looking at yeah. all of the tampons and pads and trying to figure out what to what to buy in that huge wall that she's intimidated by and you you get this very real sense that she doesn't have anyone to help her figure out like what she's supposed to be getting she doesn't have money for it so she has to kind of um she I mean, she has. To, she basically steals them um, as she helps out the the other kids that are there, and so you get this real sense that a huge part of her fear and anxiety is puberty and menstruation and her her lack of support in dealing with those things, be, and especially because I get this sense that her dad is kind of like. Um, putting a lot of this fear into her not just because not just because of the sexual assault that's going on but because he's afraid of her becoming an adult and moving into sexual maturity for for lots of reasons because she's going to be attractive to other people that aren't him and he won't have be able to control her in such a way but also the possibility of pregnancy as she's getting older and you can really sense that that is also a lot of her fears about what's going to happen to her and the way that it's going to uh, impact her life and she's crossing this threshold without any support but it finally comes in in this group that helps her like clean up this whole mess 
So I don't know that metaphorically was uh, stood out to me as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you picked up on that. The if if I remember correctly, the book is quite a bit more explicit about this. Yeah. Um, like there, it's a whole thing where like she can't let her dad know that she's buying tampons because he's gonna freak out, yeah. which is why she doesn't have the money for mm-hmm. it. Um, so so that all ha- happens in a little bit more depth, and of course it's impossible to think about this scene without thinking about basically the first horror scene anyone was ever introduced to from Stephen King, which is that opening scene from Carrie where uh, Carrie gets her period for the first time and basically gets tortured by all of those school bullies. Um, It's the, yeah. And kids not getting the right support at home is something that, he clearly has thought about a lot and bothers him a lot. Yeah. Especially with this. And like, it's, uh, uh, parents that are, that are, that don't support their daughters as they're going through puberty and going through menstruation for the first time. It is something that very much frustrates me because you see it a lot. People that are just unwilling to talk about it. And then girls that just are encountering this, this for the first time with no help. And it's, a really hard thing to go through when no one is there to support you through through that kind of experience. So I don't know. It's an important thing. We got to watch it on a we got to watch it on a cultural level when Turning Red was released oh, earlier for sure. this year. Yeah, there was all this backlash just because why why would you put all this talk about menstruation into a kids movie? It's like, Wait, what? why wouldn't you exactly. it's, that's, that's what you need go. it exactly it's, <laughs> you, the, these preteen girls are the exactly the ones that need to hear that the very most and boys as well I love in this film so I think that it would have been great to have more to have more girls in the story and get some more perspective on this but one of the things I really loved is the way that the boys come in and they don't shame her for that at all and they just work with her yeah. to get everything cleaned up as you mentioned but in particular with this concept like it's not they they don't other her because of it and I think that's I really liked that step No they're they're friends like they're real friends they're all real friends for sure for sure. They're, they're the friends that if you ask them, they'd go buy some some pads or some tampons for you, and they wouldn't have an issue with it. Yeah. They wouldn't know which ones to get, um, but they, they'd, they'd do it. But they'd be <laughs> yeah. willing, yeah. Uh, should we move on and talk about our last yeah, scene Yeah, let's do here? the last scene. Yeah, so the last scene I wanted to talk about, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on this one. We've talked a lot about this movie, but I wanted to talk about this haunted house sequence, particularly because there's... I th- like I think they did a really good job of turning this into like the full I guess it's like the pre-climax set For piece sure. yes, of the movie. Well, and right as they were getting into this, I was like, "Wait, how much time is left in this movie? I thought it was this was a long one and they're right at here." And I saw there was like 40 or 50 minutes left and I'm like, "Are they coming What's going on? They're fighting Pennywise now." Um so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this movie, this sequence does a really good job of capturing, like, that feel of a typical haunted house. And one of the things that, like, it kind of, it the story it does is it just kind of runs the gamut on all of the horror tropes. And it won't surprise you to know that there's a lot more in the book that don't make it 
into the movie. Yeah. But one of those most important ones is that scary house, that haunted house. And they really cram, like, everything into this section of the house. You uh, get sort of, like, the doors slamming. You get the floor opening up and then uh eddie tumbling through the floor breaking his arm you get that really cool sequence and all of this gets like a lot more detail in the book but i think they did a really good job of just making it feel like a carnival funhouse ride for this sequence it's like you don't need any of this detail. You don't really need to understand, like, what's going on with those three doors with the one that says, like, kind of scary, very scary, and not scary at all. Like, you can either pay attention and figure out, like, that they had to sort of test themselves and go through the very scary one, or you can just be on the ride, and it sort of works on all of those levels. It works on both of those levels. You also get this very vague allusion to the uh, werewolf that Pennywise sort of starts to turn into the werewolf here. And it's just, it's so wild and so much happens that, and especially because it deviates from the book so much or it felt so fresh to me from the book, I found it very affecting in theaters because I really had no idea what was going to happen. Yes. I was yeah. pretty scared. Um, and the performances are really good. Oh, this scene man. is the first time where the kids, the group of kids met Bill Skarsgård and he was in costume. Oh, really? Yeah, so, well, no, they met him once beforehand at their table read, but they like kept mm-hmm. everything about his stuff under wraps for the entire film for this scene because the director wanted the first scene to have with him to be as like uh, evocative as possible so all of these kids were all nervous about what's what's bill gonna look like and what's the clown and so the, those reactions that they're getting are just then actually like legitimately screaming because it's terrifying oh that's amazing i mean that moment where he unfolds from the safe Ugh. yeah that's creepy that, i when that happened in the movie theater for the first time, I was just like, oh my god. That That is probably the one moment from the movie that I just like, I remember that happening and being terrified. And then it's like, honestly, that moment, there's a moment very similar to that in um, Multiverse of Madness. Yes. And yeah. I think just because it made me remember it, it like bumped that movie up in my ratings like three <laughs> notches just because it made me so happy that's great i got this little knockoff effect that's great yeah i felt like horror lore you know and so it felt like it placed me for that movie yeah. you also get a really creepy um he he also does a really creepy walk actually after he finally unfurls yeah, he does. and his oh man his movement is so good and then of course and I'm pretty sure this is a deviation from the book, but I love it. Beverly's the one who spears him in the head. If it weren't for Beverly, like they'd probably all have died. Yeah, that in was there. Epic. and she. That, that was yeah, great. that was great. Definitely a fist pump moment. Yeah, I, I love and, that. It was good. Oh, and then I under so th- there are a lot of Easter eggs in this movie. One of my favorite happens in this scene, which is when. Pennywise is terrorizing Richie 
and he says to him, beep, beep, Richie. Uh-huh. And this is an homage to something that happens in the books. It's something that has really stuck with me. Obviously, Richie is a loudmouth, and Richie, um, like is the one who's always cracking jokes. And one of the things that the that they go into in the book is like, he doesn't have a filter and Richie really can go too far and Richie can hurt other people's feelings. And he yeah. doesn't mean to, it's just like, it's who he is. And so the kids, the rest of the Losers Club develop like a code that whenever they say beep beep Richie, that's them telling him like, "Hey, you went too far, and we ah. know it's you, and it's no hard feelings, but like you gotta back off yeah, now." That makes sense. And it's one of the things that I remember and love from this book. And so this little Easter egg I found, I I liked a lot when it happened in the movie. That makes sense. Yeah. And again, it works on both levels because it's creepy if you don't know the books, but if you do, it's. Uh, it gives you that little added layer. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That's uh, that's cool. I'm I'm glad to know that now. The, that's all I was going to say about the scene. So if you have more have stuff, one, we can do that. Or I have we can one more thing on about that there. scene, but it's kind of like just a general thing. One of the things that I noticed, because like one of the locuses of the fear of this is this rundown house. And so I was thinking about like mm-hmm. why people find rundown houses as being scary. And what I was kind of coming to is it's very much like this middle-class fear of it's a suburban oh, fear yeah. in particular of like a house that nobody lives in. That's kind of rundown and what might be there because, you know, if you're, if you've grown up quite poor um, and if you've had to like be homeless for some amount of time, rundown house is not particularly scary because you might've like had to go sleep there sometime. Um, it's a place mm-hmm. that, that might be a place of safety where you can hide from things that might be dangerous. And if you're, if you're particularly wealthy, you're just not going to be around these as much. But the middle class, like, fear of what could be at this house that, like, you don't know exactly what's happening there. And all kinds of dangerous things could be happening. You hear stories about uh, things happening in different houses. I don't know. It really stuck out to me as as an embodiment of the very middle class fears that this fi- that this film middle class suburban fear specifically that this film is presenting yeah it sort of symbolizes a degradation of your commu- your perceived community and your perceived living area right yeah if you're a if there's a rundown house in your neighborhood yeah which taps into this fear of like losing socioeconomic status exactly yeah so anyway, that's the only thing I had left to say about that with the house and uh, we can move on. Okay, yeah, let's do let's see what do I have for cleanup? I have one thing left, so okay, I guess I have three. So why don't I go yeah, first? For sure. One is this really cool moment that I wanted to highlight. I rewound it to to watch it twice. but the it's for Stanley Uris, which, I don't think Stanley Uris has really served very well in this movie, I have to say. I can't remember how well he served in the book, but the super I wouldn't say this is great Jewish representation. Um but the so the scene where he is he has that picture in his dad, the rabbi's office that he gets scared of. There's this really, really cool moment where he turns around and the door starts creaking. And then the door creak elides into like a flute line from the score. 
and I had forgotten about it, but when I was watching, I was like, oh, I remember noticing that in theaters and thinking it was really, really cool. And I thought it again this time. Excellent. Yeah. That part was, that that part was kind of creepy. Yeah. The, the, that Mm -hmm. picture is just a weird picture. Um, I can see why the kid would be scared of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a feeling, um, with the Jewish representation and the way that it was coming, uh, coming across, um, uh, you know, that it doesn't quite get there, but you know, I'm glad the character's in there, I guess. So, yeah, I don't know that anyone really has like a strong history of dealing with anti Semitism. So, I like either the director or Stephen King. So, I, I think it just probably wasn't fully fleshed yeah, out, exactly. Um, which is fine, yeah, it's okay. What else did you have for your cleanup section? Um, I wanted to mention one other Easter egg that shows up because this is an 1,100-page book, so I figure people might be happy to know the Easter eggs when they show up. One of the things that they changed from the book to the movie but I think is probably a very good change is there is the movie ends up being like... you or sorry, in the book you get sort of like this weird origin story for it where they like come to the, where it comes to the planet through like this comic comet like 3,000 years before and it's like a cosmic force who thinks that it's the only cosmic force like it in the world until it meets the turtle and the turtle is sort of what fails the kids the first time but then is able to help them uh help them defeat it, defeat the monster in the end. Okay. And it's very weird, and it doesn't really work in the book, and it's one of those things that, like, Stephen King is very frequently maligned for his endings because his endings kind of suck, and this is a very good example of it. But there is a moment in the movie where there is, I believe it's, like, a Lego turtle that gets smashed in, like, the first 30 to 45 minutes of the movie, and this is an it's an easter egg for for book readers and the turtle has uh larger larger cosmic implications within the stephen king multiverse sort of has like a larger role to play in the dark tower as well excellent yeah that was a bunch of things that i that was over my head but i'm i'm glad (laughs) i'm glad that it was there It, it, it makes sense again it's so innocuous in the movie like it doesn't yeah, it doesn't you deter, it. You're not like, what is, what is that? Uh, the one thing that I would say yeah. is that a turtle would be an amphibious creature able to pass between water and land, you know, in... I think they say something about that in the swimming scene. I think they name check a turtle as well. Oh, I think I they do. Yeah, they, sure. they, I think they, I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was like, why did they do that? Okay, whatever. So that makes sense. Um, how about I share my one thing because it's, it's just uh, uh, kind of a little yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the like, bullies in this one, they're driving a car that's a Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. Uh, I found it really interesting mm-hmm. that the bullies are on cars and the kids are on bikes and the tension between yeah, like cars representing adults and bikes representing kids. But that car, the Pontiac Firebird Trans Am, is such a good car and it was also 
my dad's car when he was in <gasps> high school. Oh, so cool. Yeah, so the uh, that car, it's not the same uh, it's not the same year because that one was in 1981 that was in this movie, which was the last one of the generation of the of that generation of Pontiac Trans Ams, which I think fits really well because it's like right on the edge of transitioning into a new phase. Uh, so it's right on that liminal space as well. I think it was a really good choice to make it that 1981 Trans Am. So um, mm. I don't know. It, it looks great in this movie. That kid would have had to. So the Pontiac Trans Am was created as like a a competitor with the Camaro and the Mustang. Uh, the Mustang first and then the Camaro. Um, so it was a competitor that was supposed to be a little bit cheaper and more accessible to like um, uh, middle class kids that weren't quite as wealthy. But it it drives like one of those muscle cars, and you know it has a real weight to it when it drives, and like it's loud, and uh, it's you know it has a lot of get up and go, and can go very fast. But it it just like those muscle cars, it's real. It is a real work to kind of turn them to to move around and all of those things. It is not a nimble car to drive, and so it really fits within kind of the ethos of this show, this movie of like middle class anxiety and the border between adulthood and this liminal space. I don't know. It was just a great car, and it's one of my favorite cars. The as bully well. space. Yeah, it's and it's a car that just looks great on camera. More Pontiac Firebird Trans Ams in in movies. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so yeah it's a great car anyway i'll pass the time back over to you um yeah the last thing i have i'm kind of surprised you didn't mention it but i think this movie um obviously doesn't go as hard as it could but i was surprised on rewatch this is a pretty firmly anti-cop movie. oh yeah for sure that's true <laughs> yeah <laughs> i noticed that when i was watching it but i didn't write it in my notes so <laughs> Yeah, so it does it in two ways. One of them is, like, really overt, and it's obviously, like, the, what is the, Henry Bowers, I think, is that big bully's Mm -hmm. name? Like, his dad is a cop, and it is, it, like, clearly shows that the cycle of abuse came from his dad. Like, his dad bullied him, and I think it's drawing a pretty stark line to cops are bullies which uh, was pretty cool. But the other place that it happens, and I didn't notice this my first time through, but I noticed it this time, is the scene where they're all in the town square and they're talking about all the bad stuff that's happening and they're trying to figure it out. There are like three or four times in that scene where cops just pass by in the background and I think this is, I think it's intentional both to be cops and to be adults, where it's showing like there's this horrible thing happening. Kids are disappearing at whatever they say, like six times the rate of normal places. And the kids are the only ones paying attention yeah. to it. And the cops are like, like ostensibly that's supposed to be their job, yeah, right? But they is don't to protect even care. the kids. Yeah. And they're just, yeah, they're just not even paying attention. They just, just put a new missing poster right over the top of the old ones. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, for sure. So. It's a, that, that's good stuff. Oh, and then I guess I want to say one more thing is part of the reason I love the depiction of the kids in this movie. I, maybe it's weird. I love seeing kids say fuck on screen. <laughs> like, teenagers yeah at least when i was a teenager like we said it all the time and it was like it makes it feel real to me and especially whenever whichever one of them is like uh 
well, I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> at the end, yeah. Uh, yeah, at the end. I think that's... What's his name? Richie uh, at the end. Yeah, it is um, Richie. Because it's pulling a fake on you. You think he's going to, like, run away. Yeah, but no. He's like gotta kill this fucking clown. yeah it's great i mean ah, it's a great I word um i don't understand why people have such an aversion to it i think it's i think it's dumb because it's a great word that uh you know it's one of the best words in the english language i love the fuck word it's a good Multifaceted. one yeah. yeah so and now we have to give this podcast an explicit i know time. we're gonna have to that's okay so this this will be the Oops. one sorry everybody <laughs> but uh i i mean if they're listening to ed i think uh, I think they're for good. sure. Uh, I just it's one of those words like my position is always I don't think that that word actually hurts anybody. And so I don't think it's bad to say it. But, you know, if uh, what I always tell my kids is I don't care if you use that word, but don't use words that are slurs intended to hurt people. I I think that kind of word is much more offensive than the word fuck. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah, there we go. Stream it. A firmly pro fuck. Yes, podcast. we are in favor of the word. It's a great one. Okay, well let's let's wrap this up. I have more stuff in my notes, but we've been good. This might be our longest show yeah, yet. Yeah, might which, be. So. Oof. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Um, of course, thank you to David, aka Estoril, who uh, our good friend, but also beta listener and does tireless work editing the podcast. Uh, this one's actually probably pretty clean. I think it's mostly all one take, except for except for the break. Um, yeah. so hopefully, hopefully smooth sailing, even though it's long. Yeah. And if you want to shoot us some feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us some, uh, long form feedback, you can do it at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear whatever you have to say. If you have uh, positive feedback, if you have some constructive criticism, we'll we'll take all of that. If there are future movies you want us to cover, uh, yeah, definitely get them in. And then next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that you have seen, Matt, but I have not. I'm very we're going to talk about this. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm stoked for this one, the Sea Beast from this year, yes. which uh, yeah should be should be good. All right. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to you next Bye. time. Bye. That is Tug. Um, Hi, Tug. I think somebody must be walking in front of the house at the moment. Yeah.